Let's open the Word of God to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, we began this morning with 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. And without controversy, great, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed unto the world, received up into glory. In Acts chapter 2, we have a more detailed account of those events. I am burdened the most, not with content, because I have enough content to keep me happy for a long while preaching to you, but burdened to get you to embrace this chapter with me, to embrace each of its 47 verses, to embrace its individual words, to look for every lesson the Word of God can give us today. I wish that I could come and lovingly take you by your lapels and look you in the eye and get you excited about the Word of God. Because this is a transcendent chapter describing world-changing events. Our newspapers tell us about little tiny events that don't change anything. This changed the world. From the darkness of idolatry and worshiping stumps and trees and totem poles, sun and moon, bugs and dogs, the, the gospel went around the world and left Christianity in every nation. And it changed those nations. And where Christianity was the preponderant religion, it drastically changed those nations. And we want to thank the Lord for all that he did that's described here in Acts chapter 2. And we want to learn as much as he can show us. The book of Acts is called the Acts of the Apostles. So it is limited to the apostolic stage of the New Testament church. It is a history book written by Luke a Gentile Greek doctor, the beloved physician the Apostle Paul referred to him as. He wrote a history of what Jesus did while he was on earth. That's the Gospel of Luke, 24 chapters. He wrote these 28 chapters of what took place after Jesus went to heaven, that ascension of Jesus to heaven being the end of the Gospel and the beginning of his apostolic history. And you read that last evening in Acts chapter 1, the Lord willing. The book of Acts, it's a church history that we can study with total confidence because it's inspired. There's a lot of church histories out there written by denominational historians that have a denominational bias. This is unbiased. This is an inspired and preserved history of the church. And we want to aspire to its description of a church that this chapter concludes with because it was the best church at that time because it was had the fullest measure of the Spirit that we can read about in the New Testament. The date of this event in Acts chapter 2 is about the 1st of June in the year 30 A.D. Jesus had died 50 days earlier. That's why it is called Penta. Penta, Latin and Greek for 50. Pentecost. Because Pentecost was a feast 50 days after Passover. That's why it's called Pentecost. And in 40 years, Jerusalem will be leveled. But it's taking place in Jerusalem 50 days after Jesus was crucified. The changes that occurred this day with the immediate and later results make it a transcendent day in world history. Phenomenal changes took place because of this day. Human history was changed forever by empowering the world's best and largest religion. Yes, 99% of that religion is now heretical, as the Bible prophesied and warned. The drama, the results, the details of this chapter are unprecedented in the Bible's pages. There's no chapter like it. And you know that I have other favorite chapters. But when you come to content, and the variety of content, there is no chapter like Acts chapter 2. You know I love the love song. I love the love song of Psalm 45. I love the praise of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, His Son, in Hebrews chapter 1. But there's no chapter like Acts chapter 2 with the variety of topics that are dealt with and the changes that took place. They're described there. Hollywood and Bollywood, by all their hopeless dramas filled with factual and moral errors, cannot come close to the drama that is in Acts chapter 2. Here's the formal birth of Christianity in some respects. 
and the appointment and empowerment for kingdom expansion. And it wasn't slow kingdom expansion. It was kingdom explosion. I believe because I don't know of a reason not to. That Acts chapter 3 took place the same day. And Acts chapter 4 took place the same day. Down through the first few verses. So that when they preached their second sermon of the day, there were 5,000 men converted. Before the sunset. It's what I've taught you before. If you can remember back 20 years when I preached the book of Acts one time before. Which I'm not attempting to preach right now except this one chapter. I just When I say explosion, I mean explosion. This was at 9 o'clock in the morning. They could have easily been done with these proceedings by noon or 1 o'clock. Had lunch and got their breath back and the Holy Spirit filled them again. They went to the temple at 3 o'clock in the afternoon and found a man lame from his mother's womb at the gate called Beautiful, raised, healed him there on the spot, preached again to the people that were put in amazement because of that healing miracle. 5,000 men were converted to add to these 3,000, let alone women and children, on one day. And they were put in hold until the next day because the Jewish rulers wanted to examine them for preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ, whom they had just crucified 50 days earlier. The kingdom of Jesus Christ, represented by this church at this time, exploded 26 times in size before noon, from 120 to 3,120. There were only 120 members in that church after three and a half years of our Lord's ministry, but by noon there were 3,120. And there were a whole lot more later. Oh, it's, it, this is large. What other chapter in the Bible contains baptism and communion? You can't find one, and now I've just started on my little table. What other chapter? And I've got more to put in that table. The 144,000 is in that table, but I wasn't going to put that in the table because I didn't want to distract you. Now I've distracted you. But you just stick to Acts chapter 2 with me for the time being. What other chapter in the Bible contains baptism, communion, speaking in tongues, preaching, prophecy, and eating? Anyone ignorant of this chapter has missed a variety of the earth's greatest blessings and some of its largest changes. If you read Acts chapter 1 last night, you got the contextual setting of replacing Judas Iscariot with Matthias. You got the contextual setting of the Lord Jesus Christ telling them, just stay here in Jerusalem, just wait until I endue you with power from on high. It's Luke 24, 49. It's Acts 1, 8. It, Luke, that's the transition from Luke to Acts. That event is mentioned twice. You just hold on in Jerusalem for a few days. It was about one week. Think with me. 50 days. Passover to Pentecost. Jesus is in the ground three days. He was seen alive for 40 days. So we've got one week left, about seven days left, from his ascension into heaven until this day. The Lord had warned them that he was going to give them, warned them, promised them, that he was going to give them the Holy Spirit in just a few days. The Church of Jesus Christ at this stage was a group of 120 frightened and timid disciples in a city without about a million souls because of the feast. Jerusalem usually only had a couple hundred thousand, but because of the feast of Pentecost, and it was an important feast, the Apostle Paul, later in his ministry, Acts chapter 20, is going to make his way back to Jerusalem for the feast of Pentecost. It was still important. But the Jews had come here, and we're going to read about them from 15 different nations arriving here in Jerusalem for this feast. So there was a large influx of people to aid the evangelism, and they would take the message back out of Jerusalem to their home nations. The kingdom of God appeared very weak. Its citizens confused, it being fragile and uncertain, and without much reason at all for any admiration. For the moment, for a week, until this day right here. And then what a change. However, though the kingdom of God looked kind of pitiful, kind of weak, 
Jesus Christ had taken his throne in heaven and was seated at the right hand of God, and God had given to him the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the ministry, to in turn give to his church. And he poured out those things on the church. Jesus had to get up into heaven, be crowned as Lord of all, a man ruling the universe, a man ruling all the angels, good and evil, a man sitting at God's right hand, our brother, rewarded and given spoils from the victory because he destroyed the devil, he destroyed death, he beat the grave, he conquered sin. And so he was given great rewards, and he in turn poured those rewards out on his church. Prophesied in the Old Testament, Psalm 68, verse 18, fulfilled Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, about this transaction that I'm describing to you right now. Jesus had taken his throne in heaven, and he was about to use his rule and his power for the benefit of his church, and in 40 years destroy his enemies, which was to to destroy the city of Jerusalem with 1.1 million killed in the besiege of that city by the Roman Empire in 40 years, which is mentioned in this chapter. It's mentioned a couple of times in this chapter because it's one of the huge events of Jesus Christ displaying his power in the world. It is the greatest catastrophe and tribulation that has ever affected any nation. Nagasaki, Hiroshima were only little blips, little tiny events in the history of the nation of Japan. The destruction of Jerusalem was huge in proportion to its population and the amount of suffering. And I've been through all that comparison before, but when the Bible says that the destruction of Jerusalem was the greatest tribulation the world had ever seen, or would ever see, I believe it. So I then look for comparisons, and those that died at Hiroshima or Nagasaki only had to think about it for less than a second. Some died later, but the most were evaporated. These people ate their own children because they starved to death. And the factions of the Jews inside those city walls were murdering each other while the Romans kept guard outside that city. But when Jesus Christ took his throne, he did good things, this chapter, and he promises in this chapter that he's going to do other things, bad things, to his enemies that took place shortly. And these people, by believing Peter's sermon, could save themselves from that future event. And that is mentioned as well. When Jesus Christ gave the gift of the Holy Spirit in this chapter... The first church of the New Testament exploded into life, exploded into power, and grew drastically in quantity and quality. Because when we get to the last seven verses of this chapter and see the character of this church, it is beautiful to read about. This chapter should have a profound effect on your life. It deals with so many errors. It presents so much truth. It exalts the Lord Jesus Christ. It tells us about the power of the Holy Spirit. It presents the place of baptism, the condition for baptism. It shows us the nature of a church and what we ought to be striving to do. Our goals are simple. To delight in God's gift of Jesus Christ, His gift of the Holy Spirit, and a description of a church that we want to emulate. We want to copy. We want to copy the description of this church. And the tools for doing so are in the chapter. Lord, help us. Acts chapter 2. The first lesson is in the first four verses. Let's see if we can do it. Acts 2, 1 through 4. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire. And it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. 
This is our first of 12 sections, divisions to this chapter, verses 1 through 4. I hope that you already looked at the table of topics introduced in this chapter. I would love to read them to you and add a few for you, but I'll pass over that. And I'll suggest to anyone listening to this sermon elsewhere at another time that if you would like to go on our website and look for the day of Pentecost or Acts chapter 2, you can find the table that I'm referring to and all the topics that are dealt with in Acts chapter 2 in the first part of the outline for this chapter. So we have the day of Pentecost described in these verses. Listen, if there was ever a meeting on planet earth and tongues of fire, little flames, a little fireplace appeared in the tops of the heads of the people in the meeting, it's a first. And it's a last. And we believe it. We've made a choice. What are we going to believe? The Bible isn't true and bet my life and bet my future on that. Or that the Bible is true, and I'll bet my life and my future on it. There is no wisdom in betting against the Bible. Because if you look at any topic in the Bible, whether it's financial, whether it's economical, whether it's political, whether it's relational, whether it's marital, whether it's domestic, it's got transcendent wisdom in it. Anybody that doesn't even have to be a Christian... Just live financially the way the Bible teaches, you will prosper. Live maritally the way the Bible describes, you will have a fantastic marriage. Don't bet against the Bible. We don't. We're Bible Christians. We can call ourselves Baptists. Others may call us Baptists because of the way we baptize. We don't have it in our name because there was no Baptist church by name in the Bible. We're Bible Christians, so we believe this. Which means that when the League of Nations met and they didn't have tongues of fire, their meeting was somewhat inferior to this meeting. When the United Nations holds its meetings and there's no tongues of fire, their gathering is somewhat inferior to this meeting. And they really haven't helped much, have they? They've been around now for, let's see, something like 70 years. And do we have a united world today? No, we don't at all. They're fighting everywhere. And, you know, who knows what's going on right now toward North Korea or in the Middle East. But there was some, uni- there was some unity here because it says so in the first verse. They were, all, they, they were all with one accord in one place. How about when you get 3,000 brand new people that are strangers added to you and now you're 3,120? Do you get along? It's verse 46. And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple. One accord. It went from 120 to 3,120. The 120 were experienced, knowledgeable. The 3,000 didn't know anything. Did they get along? Perfectly. Why? By the Holy Spirit. Families that get along are Christian families. And they have the Holy Spirit. Families that don't get along are not Christian families. And they don't have the Holy Spirit. It is so easy to detect the presence of the Spirit of God because the Spirit of God makes peace. The Spirit of God makes unity. And it's here in verse 1, one of the things that we'll get to. Pentecost. Let's deal with some of these words. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, it was not a week-long feast. It was a single-day feast. Most of the Jewish feasts, the big ones, were week-long. This was one day, the Feast of Pentecost. It was called Pentecost because penta is Latin and Greek for 50. Let me help you with that. We have a building in Washington, D.C. called the Pentagon, and it has six sides, right? It's a square because it's got four sides? No, it's got five. Pentecost, 50 days after Passover. It was also called the Feast of Weeks because they were to take a Sabbath day and count seven Sabbaths, and the next day was Pentecost. If you take a Sabbath and count seven Sabbaths, how many days is that? 49. We got times table veterans in here. 49, the next day is day 50. So the next day would be what day of the week? 
Sunday. I'm coming back to that baby shortly. The Jews didn't worship on Sunday. They worshiped on Saturday. They worshiped on their Sabbaths. And so did the Seventh-day Adventists and a few other groups today. But Pentecost was on the first day of the week because it tells us in Leviticus 23, 16, how to calculate it. Get the Sabbath that is closely connected to the Passover and count seven weeks. And the next day is Pentecost. It was called, it's also called in the Bible, the Feast of Harvest or Feast of First Fruits. Because here's what they did. On this one day, they brought the first ripe wheat around the 1st of June. The first ripe wheat and waved it before the Lord to give him his portion. And they ate some special bread made from that wheat. Then they could go and eat their heart. They could not touch the new harvest until they gave the Lord his portion. This was 50 days after they had done the same thing with barley. They had done this with barley on the day after the first Sabbath of the Passover week, because barley ripens about seven weeks in front of wheat. Don't ask me any more questions about agricultural timing. All I know is that when I put the bread in a toaster and push the down button, if I wait about one minute, it'll come up. I can't even have that these days. Just give me the bacon and eggs. Forget the toast. Hold the toast. They could not eat the current harvest until they gave the Lord of harvest his portion. This is a great comparison, and I very seldom do this, but when you've got a feast day dedicated to harvest, it's the second harvest feast day, the day after the Sabbath and the Passover week was also one, barley, wheat. And it's called the Feast of Harvest in the Bible, and it's called the Feast of First Fruits in the Bible I take those words because Paul said, right here are the first fruit converts of the gospel. Right. right here. The apostles and those that followed them were the first fruits of the gospel. And they're called that throughout the New Testament. And what a harvest of souls it was. Right. Wait in Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. And they did, and they were blessed with power from on high. This feast was important to the Apostle Paul. I've mentioned that. I'm not going to turn you to Acts chapter 20 or 1 Corinthians 16. In both places, it's the only other places where Pentecost is mentioned by this name. And the Apostle Paul still wanted to attend it in, say, 60, 65 AD. He wanted to make his way back to Jerusalem for it from Asia Minor. Because of this ordained feast, being right here at this time, there were many foreign Jews there for the celebration. We're going to have their locations listed down there in verses 9 through 11. And then they took that gospel message that they heard and took it back to their nations and to their families. That's the Feast of Pentecost. So it tells us and when the day of Pentecost was fully come. So we know when. We know the when of these events. About June 1st in our English calendar, about the year 30 A.D. The day of Pentecost also tells us, which I've already introduced to you, that Jesus Christ again confirmed Transition of worship, transition of worship from of 1,500 years of world history for the Jews' religion from the Sabbath to the first day of the week, from the last day of the week to the first day of the week because of the calculation. Let me show you the calculation. Le Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus 23. Do Seventh-day Adventists know that Pentecost took place in the first day of the week? Yes. That doesn't change their superstition because they have a woman that started and built their denomination whose maiden name was Ellen Harmon Gould who married James White and is known as Ellen G. White. She was their prophetess. She said she went to heaven. And when she got there, she looked in the Ark of the Covenant and there were the Ten Commandments and there was one commandment highlighted. And that commandment that was highlighted was the Sabbath commandment. So they, they're not, they don't care what the Bible says. They never have. They care what Ellen G. White told them. And so the Seventh-day Adventists still worship on the Sabbath day. And they're tell, they tell us that because of what we're doing today on the first day of the week, we're called Sunday, that we're sun worshipers and we've taken the mark of the beast. But who cares? Thank you, Lord. After the way they call heresy, so worship I the God of our fathers. Amen. 
Leviticus 23 and verse 16. Even unto the morrow, after the seventh Sabbath, shall ye number fifty days. Verse 15, let me get verse 15. Ye shall count unto you from the morrow after the Sabbath, from the day that ye brought the sheaf of the wave offering, that's the barley, seven Sabbaths shall be complete, even unto the morrow after the seventh Sabbath. So when you take seven Sabbaths, that's 49 days, plus one is 50, why it's called Pentecost, and you know it's the day after a weekly Sabbath, because you've counted seven of those weekly Sabbaths to get to the next day, which is Sunday. Thank you, Lord. But now this is not new. This is not the first time. Look at John chapter 20, and it's only a few pages back from Acts chapter 2. John chapter 20, and let's notice some identification given to us about the timing of the Lord revealing himself after his resurrection from the dead. And how he met with his gathered apostles. John chapter 20 and verse 1, the first day of the week. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene. It's still dark in the morning. Jesus has already risen from the dead, but he's going to reveal himself to them on this particular day. First day of the week. Look at verse 19. Then the same day at evening. You know, we've, we've had almost 12 hours transpire now. Then the same day at evening being the first day of the week. Notice the Holy Spirit's emphasis on the day of the week. When the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled, notice, they're having an assembly for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. First day of the week. Jesus shows himself to the women in the morning. Jesus shows himself to the gathered, assembled apostles in the evening. Look at verse 26 of this same chapter. And after eight days, again his disciples were within. And someone will say, well, that's Monday. True, the way you count. But being inclusive, it's Sunday. When I go from Sunday to Sunday, inclusive, not exclusive, there's three ways you can count it. Eight, seven, and six. If it's exclusive, then you don't count either Sunday. If it's the way we typically count it ourselves, it's seven. Theirs was eight. Again, it's the first day of the week when they were assembled, Jesus comes among them. And this is why a great transition took place right here for the day of the week. The whole world, pretty much, Jews accepted, Seventh-day Adventists accepted. I mean, a great part of the world looks at Sunday as the day of worship, not the Sabbath. You know, they talk about the judeo Christian thing, which I'm not even sure what they mean, because Christians aren't Jews. I do understand what they intend to a limited degree, but listen, we we worship on the first day of the week, and we do it because of more than the evidence I'm showing you right now, but I want to show you that Jesus Christ, during his 40 days, he appeared on the first day of the week, and it was the first day of the week when Pentecost had the greatest worship service of the New Testament, and all that flowed from that. Look at Colossians chapter 2. We we need to make sure that we understand this point. You may at some time run into Seventh-day Adventists. We want to see them converted. They write me every single week of my life, and I write them back telling them that when they want to be Christians, we would love them to join us, and I would be happy to baptize them. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. Paul wrote... Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Those are, that's an Old Testament thing. It's gone. In fact, verses 13 and 14 say that Jesus Christ, verses 14 and 15 are, more, are better. Verses 14 and 15 say Jesus Christ and the cross nailed those ceremonial rituals of the Jews' religion to their cross, and they're over with. So this is, these are some of the verses that we go to. Now, when we go through the New Testament, we find out that the Apostle Paul, when he met with a church at Troas in Acts chapter 20, they met on the first day of the week, and it tells us that. Acts chapter 20, the first day of the week. 1 Corinthians 16, Paul wrote the Corinthians in Greece and told them, 
that the churches of the Galatians, which was Asia or Turkey today, he said, I have commanded churches to gather their things together on the first day of the week, to gather their giving together on the first day of the week. That was the day of worship for the New Testament set by the apostles, but initiated by the Lord Jesus Christ, who had as one of his titles, the Lord of Sabbath, not Sabaoth. The Lord of Sabaoth means the Lord of hosts, but he was also the Lord of the Sabbath and could set the rules regarding the Sabbath, and he undid the Sabbath. They write me and say, who had the authority to change the day of worship from Saturday to Sunday? The Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 8, Mark chapter 2 and verse 28. In both places he says that. And on those occasions, he was justifying his apostles for breaking the Jewish Sabbath laws. And he said, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. They didn't recognize him then that way, and they persecuted him incessantly for breaking their Sabbath, but he gets the last laugh by totally turning the Sabbath away and having all of his followers worship on the first day of the week, which we're doing right now. Praise be to God for showing us even that point of truth so that we're not confused by it. Jesus told the woman of Samaria, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when they're in Jerusalem and not even going to be worshiping the Father in truth. This is called the time of reformation. There's a 40-year time period in the Bible called the time of reformation. We do not look to the 16th and 17th centuries or the 15th centuries for Martin Luther, John Calvin, and the others and their reformation. They were trying to reform the Catholic Church. There wasn't anything to reform. It wasn't a true church. It was long gone and lost, and it's the greatest enemy of Bible Christianity in the history of the world is the Roman Catholic Church. But the Reformation that is in the Bible is called the Reformation, the time of Reformation, Hebrews 9.10, when those Old Testament Jewish things would be done away and there would be a new form of worship. And it lasted for 40 years. It started with John the Baptist and it ended with the destruction of Jerusalem. It started with the Lord Jesus Christ. It ended with Jerusalem. And during this 40-year period of time, the apostles of Jesus Christ taught the new form of worship. To Gentiles. Jesus was a Jew, born under the law of Moses, so he kept the law of Moses his entire life. But after his death, look at the day of worship changing and other ordinances changing. All of a sudden, there's this thing called baptism. Where did baptism come from? John the Baptist brought it in. That's why he was called John the Baptist, because he baptized. And so for 40 years, The form of religion is changed. They write me every single week. Do you believe that God changes? No. What does that have to do with the price of tea in China? Well, then how can the day of worship change? God and the way he wants to be worshipped are two very different things. Before the law of Moses, there was 2,500 years of the patriarchs. Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob... For 2,500 years, they didn't worship the Moses way. There wasn't a tabernacle. There wasn't a temple. There wasn't a priesthood. Melchizedek. God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. I change not. However, his form of worship does change. And for that 40-year period of time, it transitioned over to the Gentiles and the New Testament. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, congregational worship like this, a whole new set of scriptures. The Jews only had the 39 books of the Old Testament. Now we've got 27 books of the New Testament. Change, change. No more priests, except everyone's a priest. Everyone in here that believes on Jesus Christ is their own priest. You don't need me. You don't need Pope Frank. You don't need anyone. You can go straight into the presence of God yourself. The Jews couldn't do that. Only the high priest and only once a year at one place could go and meet God between those two cherubim over their little box called the Ark of the Covenant. Change, change, change had taken place. And so the day of worship had changed as well. The Seventh-day Adventists always want to tell me that it was the Roman Catholic Church that changed the day of worship from Saturday to Sunday. And therefore, I have bowed my knee to the Roman Catholic Church. 
Listen, the Roman Catholic Church didn't even exist until after 300 A.D., and I'm reading to you right now that in 30 A.D. the day of worship was changed. I'm telling you that in Acts chapter 20, do we need to look at it? Since we're close by, let's look at it. Acts chapter 20, so that you don't think that I'm pulling the proverbial wool over your eyes. Acts chapter 20 and verse 7. We are at the city of Troas. Acts 20 and verse 7. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. You can learn one thing there. I don't preach very long. Because I am not continuing till midnight for my physical safety. Not that I couldn't. If the topic is good enough, I have the energy yet. Upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together. See, they're coming together in an assembly. They're gathering together on the first day of the week. And there's the example. The Sabbath was a great Jewish institution that God had enforced severely in the Old Testament. Severely. Remember Numbers chapter 15, a man picked up sticks on the Sabbath day. The Lord said, stone him. Remember why they were taken captive into Babylon for 70 years? 70 years? 70, 70. Because they hadn't kept his Sabbath. And so he said, I'll take you captive for 70 years. There'll be no Jews left in Israel for 70 years. The land will have its Sabbath. 70 years of Sabbath, of rest, because you wouldn't keep my Sabbath. It was a huge day, but Jesus Christ is changing it, and we start with the word Pentecost. And when when we look at Pentecost, we find out that it's the day after seven Sabbaths. So we know it's the first day of the week. More could be said about that, but we don't need to do that. Oh, yes, just a little bit. Just a little bit. They will write me and say, Why, when I read through the Bible, do I find Jesus preaching or reading the scriptures in a synagogue on the Sabbath? Well, that one's easy. Jesus was a Jew born under the law of Moses, and he kept the law of Moses as a good Jew. Well, what about Paul in the book of Acts? Why would he go into a synagogue on the Sabbath day? Acts chapter 17 tells us, city after city after city, the first thing Paul would do when he got there was grab the yellow pages and look up the synagogue and go into that synagogue on the Sabbath day. And it tells us that was his manner of evangelism. See? The only reason he went to the synagogue was for evangelistic purposes. He would go in there. They would give him an opportunity to speak. He would get up there and show them that Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled their Old Testament scriptures. When he walked out, half the synagogue would walk out with him. Having just been converted to Christianity, he would baptize them and they would meet the next day as Christians in city after city, including the Troas I just showed you. Of course he went to the synagogue. That's where the scriptures that were then in the world were being read by Jews and Greek proselytes. And he had his audience of God-fearing people that he could convert to Christianity. Then they would worship on the first day of the week from then on. Okay, let's get, let's get back to Acts chapter 2 and look at that first verse again. Acts chapter 2, and when the day of Pentecost, the day of first fruits, the day of harvest, the day 50, 50 days after Passover when Jesus was crucified was fully come, meaning that it was the first day of the week, it was Sunday, and this was one tremendous day of two assemblies. One in the morning around 9 a.m., one in the afternoon after 3 p.m., between 3 o'clock and 6 o'clock, because around 6 o'clock, the apostles are all put in hold. They're put in a detention center to wait until the next day to answer for preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But notice that the Lord held back the enemies of the gospel for one day, and it was one incredible day. Amen. Why weren't they apprehended until 6 o'clock? These were, these were men that would run, at their own sh- run from their own shadows 50 days earlier, something had happened. You were going to find Peter's not afraid at all. Peter's going to jump up in about verse 14. Peter, standing up with the 11, lifted up his voice. He wasn't, guys, let's stand over here in a corner and let me whisper to you about Jesus Christ. He stood up and preached boldly because they were changed. One of the things of this chapter is the power of the Holy Spirit transforms people. It transforms men. It can transform women. 
but you need the Holy Spirit in your lives. We need to be filled with the Spirit. We can never be content with the Spirit from some day of baptism or from some day of confession of Christ or from some past sermon series about the Holy Spirit. We need to be constantly praying for more of the Holy Spirit Amen. because that's what the epistle to the Ephesians tells us. Do you remember that in all six chapters, there are references in that epistle that we need more of the Holy Spirit? They were all with one accord in one place. Notice the unity. They were all with one accord in one place. They were harmonized together. These 120, there was harmony. There was no discord. There was no debate. There was no arguing. There was no fussing. There was no fighting. There was no strife. There was no cold war. There was no contention. There were no grudges. There was no bitterness. There was nothing. One accord. All good families are always of one accord. All good churches are always of one accord. All good businesses are of one accord. Every good professional athletic team is of one accord. They are united. They know it's a team sport. They, they, they neglect seeking glory for themselves and seek glory for the team. And the more that the teamwork is approached in a team sport, they will be effective. And so it was here. And brethren, I say to you, we are fools if we think God will bless a divided or strife-filled church. He won't. He won't bless those families. He won't bless those marriages. He won't bless those businesses. He won't bless a church. And it tells us in the first verse, before the Lord Jesus Christ poured out blessings on this church, it says they were all with one accord in one place. That's an assembly. Here we are in one place. Are we all of one accord, one mind, one thought, one mouth, one heart, same goals, same purpose, fully committed, we should expect blessing. And we can pray for it because we're together, as we should be. Anger or unforgiveness grieves and quenches the spirit and invites Satan in. And I've taught that before. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 tells us we are not ignorant of his devices. What is one of the devices of Satan that breaks up families, breaks up marriages, breaks up churches? Bitterness, fighting, arguing, debating, striving, contending, not forgiving, not forgiving, not forgiving. Can I say that too many times? Not forgiving. We forgive and forget everything. We never, ever bring up anything from the past. Because when you do, you're opening your arms and saying, Satan, I love you. You're a hateful murderer from the beginning, and I am a hateful murderer because I love bitterness and I love fighting and I love arguing. Come into my home and embrace me. Give no place to the devil. It says it in Ephesians 4.27. That's the second half of a sentence. What's the first half of the sentence? Be angry and sin not, and let not the sun go down upon your wrath. If you ever let the sun set and you're angry at someone, Satan, here I am. Take me. I'm all yours. I am your loyal subject. Hate anger. Hate bitterness. Hate grudges. Hate contention. Hate strife. Hate fighting. The New Testament says so much about it. I just preached to you a sermon series called Love is the Greatest. Loving each other is the greatest way to get along with people and to prosper a church, a family, a marriage, and each of you. And so it tells us before the blessings are poured out, it says they were with one accord in one place. This kind of peace and unity is what characterized the greatest Old Testament preaching service. If you can, take the time with me to go back to Nehemiah. Ezra, Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. If you can't get there, I'll just read it to you right now. Verse 1. And all the people gathered themselves together as one man. All the men, all the women, and all the children with understanding gather themselves together as one man. That's Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 1. And as you read down through it, you can see that they are totally unified. When it's time to shout amen, they're all shouting amen. When it's time to celebrate, they're all celebrating. When it's time to go build their little booths and live in them for the Feast of Tabernacles of the Jewish system, they did it together. And here we are again. Were, were they blessed in Nehemiah 8? Amen. Were they blessed? Because they came together as one man. And these people came together. They were with one accord in one place. It's a tremendous thing. There's so many verses I could turn you to, but I, cannot, I don't want to take that much time. 
But I want to tell you that a blessing on this church requires this kind of unity. The blessing on any family requires that kind of unity. There can't be fighting in a family. It takes, just stop fighting. Just stop. Forgive. Forgive everything in the past. We just sang a song about the Jubilee. We just sang a song about the Jubilee. What is a Jubilee? Every 50th year in Israel was a Jubilee. All debts were forgiven. All property returned was given over to the, the borrower. Incredible. And the Lord did not allow you to do financial calculations based on that day. It was just a Jubilee. A trumpet would announce it. You didn't work the whole year. You took the whole year off. The Lord was going to bless your harvest in previous years for you to have the whole year off. And everybody just celebrate and have a great time. <laughs> That'd be pretty neat. Since I'm 60, I guess I would have had one of those in my life, but I can't remember a one-year-long vacation. It was in the Bible. Right. But that jubilee, why can't you have a jubilee? I'll tell you why. Because you love Satan more than God. You love fighting more than peace. Right. Let's never let that be in our church. Don't let anything arise in this church. Rebuke it. Correct it. Warn the unruly. For us, church, to always be at peace and unified right. among ourselves so that we can have the kind of blessing that appeared right here. Amen. They're, they're the same way after the, at the end of the day of Pentecost. Look at verse 46. And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple. Ch I'm still in Acts chapter 2. They continuing daily with one accord in the temple. There was no division whatsoever. Look at chapter 4, when they get filled with the Holy Ghost the next day. Verse 31, And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. Look at verse 32, And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Look at that. Full of the Holy Ghost. One heart. One soul. No division. No fighting. And so we have that in verse 1 of Acts chapter 2. Okay, Acts chapter 2, much more could be said, and I would love to say it, but we're not going to do it right now. The wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, then gentle, and easy to be entreated. Easy to be entreated, gentle, pure, peaceable, make peace, sow peace, sow righteousness by sowing peace. The last two verses of James chapter 3, the verses in front of it, do not lie to yourself and do not be deceived and do not boast about it. But if you have strife and envy and bitterness, it is devilish wisdom from beneath. And it leads to confusion in every evil work. Your marriages reflect how much of the Holy Spirit is in your marriages. Your families reflect how much the Holy Spirit is in your families. Our church reflects how much the Holy Spirit is in our church based on how, much we, how, long, how well we get along with each other. Christians get along. The Christians always get along. Verse 2, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. The Holy Spirit came from heaven with a sudden and dramatic presence to fill all of those present. We don't read of a rushing mighty wind coming. We read of the sound of a rushing mighty wind coming. Our Lord Jesus Christ had already told Nicodemus that the Holy Spirit in certain ways was like the wind because the wind blows wherever it listeth. That's wherever it wants to. And so is everyone that is born again by the Spirit of God. God regenerates, quickens, or gives the new birth, or causes a person to change by changing them on the inside as he chooses. Right. Like where the wind blows. The wind blows wherever it chooses to blow. Jesus had made that comparison. The wind, whether it's a pleasant breeze in the Old Testament or a destructive hurricane, is the Lord's. The wind is always the Lord's. The Lord rides upon the wings of the wind, the Bible tells us. And he came with a great sound of powerful wind. It didn't blow their toupees off. And it didn't blow out the windows. Because it wasn't wind. It was the sound of a rushing mighty wind. And they realized that something was happening in there to their ears. It wasn't blowing the furniture around. But it was the sound that something had arrived in that house. A similar event took place the next day. Chapter 4 and verse 31, I just read it to you. When they prayed, the place was shaken. That particular place was shaken by the Holy Spirit. Those that walk with God have experienced spirit power with faith, with peace, with love, yeah. with joy. 
with contentment. Because the Spirit works those things by His power. There is power in wind. As we've had some very small reminders of recently. There's power. And so there's this sound of power coming, and it filled the whole house. This house is filled with this noise and this presence that, had, that came with the noise of a rushing, hasting, fast, high velocity, 260 mile an hour, stage six, whatever, hurricane gale sound and filled the whole house. Not only was the house filled, overwhelming the people sitting there, but the Spirit also filled all those sitting in the house, because that's what it says in verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. First of all, it filled the house. Then it filled them that were in the house, and so they were filled from the inside and the outside they were filled. Now don't you get too excited. You know, there's Presbyterians and others that follow the Catholics with their baby sprinkling rites and call it a baptism. You know, throughout the whole New Testament, John the Baptist had to baptize near the Jordan River so that he could go down in the water and take the other person down in the water and dip them under the water to show them a burial and to show a resurrection because baptism has a, a beautiful symbolism with it. And along come people that look at the little cloven tongues of fire on the heads here and say, see, all it takes is a little bit on the head and it's called the baptism of the Holy Spirit so just a little bit on the head is good enough for a baptism. Are you with me on how they reason? But the house is filled. Right, right. If the house is filled and you're in the house, are you sprinkled, poured, or immersed? Amen. Come on. Amen. Let's be reasonable at least at the third grade level. If the house is filled and you're in the house, are you submerged? Amen. Have you been dipped? Yes. The tongue of fire on their heads was not the Spirit. It was only a token of the Spirit's presence. Each one was given a visible sign of the Holy Spirit's presence, indicating a spiritual gift in them. Our Lord had the likeness of a dove, but the Spirit's not a dove, and the dove was just a symbol, and the dove was a symbol to one particular man, John the Baptist. Right. Because God told John the Baptist on the inside, he had a word of wisdom, and he didn't have to hold his earpiece in. He had a word of wisdom. The one, upon, the one which you see the Holy Ghost descending and staying upon him, that is the Son of God. And so John's baptizing, 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 baptizing. His cousin comes, Jesus of Nazareth. He baptizes him. There comes the Holy Spirit. John stands back and says, Behold the Lamb of God. The Spirit, the dove, it's not the Spirit. The Spirit's not a dove. It's just a token of his presence. And so were these tongues of fire. Verse 6, this is not the baptism of fire. Look at Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist told about two baptisms that were coming. And we want to identify both of them and keep them straight. Now there is fire on the heads of the 120 in this room. But it's not the baptism of fire. So we've got sprinklers wrong on two counts now. Because this isn't the baptism of fire. These, this thing was not called a baptism of fire. That's a different... We want to go and see John's mention of it in Matthew chapter 3. Here's the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry. And he's preaching to the Pharisees when they came to his baptism, starting in verse 7, but I want verse 10. And now also, the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will truly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now there's fire in verse 10, in verse 11, and in verse 12. And the fire is not a token on the head. The fire is a blast furnace to burn things up. And the baptism of fire is the destruction of Jerusalem and the burning up of that city, which is identified in the New Testament through all the pages of the New Testament, identify that Jesus was going to burn that city and burn that temple to the ground, which he did. 
There were two baptisms. The baptism of the Holy Ghost. When did that take place? On the day of Pentecost. And 40 years later, the baptism of fire. Because the fire described here is not a token fire. The fire is a blast furnace. And was that nation immersed in fire? Was that nation overwhelmed with fire? Yes. Look at Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, a parable that Jesus told the Jews about what was going to happen to them. Matthew chapter 22. Now he's told, he's given a parable in chapter 21, and he asks the Jews that were there, what will the Lord of that vineyard do to those servants? And here's their answer in verse 41. They say unto him, these are the Jews answering Jesus, because it, it makes logical and reasonable sense. He will miserably destroy those wicked men. They answered correctly to this parable of Jesus, and Jesus was telling a parable about them. Right. Now, they don't understand that it's about them yet, but in about three verses they do. They say unto him, He will miserably destroy those wicked men and will let out his vineyard, that's to rent it, he will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their seasons. And that's the gospel going from the Jews and being given to the Gentiles. And we today are rendering fruits to God because we are a Gentile vineyard of God Almighty because the Jews would not give God the glory for sending his son to them. But we, who've never even seen the Son, but believe Him by faith from the pages of Scripture, are giving God glory and fruit and praise and worship today in fulfillment of this. And it goes on to describe that. It says in verse 43, I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. So the kingdom of God, God's reign and worship with His people was taken from the Jews and given to the Gentiles. We come to chapter 22. That the Pharisees now know that he's talking about them. So he gives them another parable about a king and a marriage and how the people didn't want to come to his marriage. The Jews did not want to embrace Jesus Christ. Verse 7, When the king heard that they were more, in, more interested in their business and more interested in their lives and that did not want to come to the marriage of his son, when the king heard thereof, he was wroth. And he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Is that what happened in 70 AD? Absolutely. Those men that stood around, Pilate wanted to give Jesus Christ his freedom. Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent. Pilate had a personal conversation with Jesus, and Jesus answered sufficiently for him. It's called a good confession in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Pilate's wife had come to him and told him, I had a dream last night about this man. He is innocent and you should let him go. Pilate was convinced to let him go, and those Jews forced him to do for political expediency to crucify Jesus anyway. They stood down there and screamed, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate went and washed his hands. I am free of the blood of this man. They said, let his blood be on us and on our children. They said, let his blood, the blood of the Son of God, be on us and our children. In the pages of Scripture, that was brought to pass Amen. on that generation of Jews. I just want to make sure that you understand that, that little cloven tongue of fire is not the fulfillment of Matthew chapter 3 and a baptism of fire. The overwhelming inundation, immersion, submersion, dipping, and, and drowning of that whole nation in fire took place in 70 AD with the destruction and burning of that city, just like it's described right here. Many more verses could be raised. The Spirit not only filled the room with His presence, but He also filled them with His presence, as verse 4 tells us. Look at, we're back at Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 3 tells us, And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. That was a token of the presence of God there. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So that flaming tongue, they now had spiritual gift of tongues. There was a flaming tongue, a cloven tongue of fire, means that it's split lengthwise. So there were, there were multiple tongues, two at least, coming up out of their head of fire, a little fire with split tongues of fire. The Holy Spirit in the Bible is compared to a fire. He's compared to a candlestick. When a church loses the presence of the Holy Spirit, they lose the 
candlestick in Revelation. When we grieve the Holy Spirit, we understand that is a word describing a personal relationship of offense that we create. But there's another word used to describe suppressing the blessing of the Holy Spirit. It's called quench. And quench is a verb describing suppression of a fire. And so it was a tongue of fire. It wasn't a square of fire. It, it wasn't a light bulb. It was a tongue of fire, as this third verse describes. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. This exceptional filling is going to be repeated the next day. Chapter 4 and verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. That shouldn't bother you. That shouldn't surprise you. Did the Holy Spirit come on Samson, leave, come on Samson, leave, come on Samson, leave, come on Samson, come on David, leave, come on David? Did, did that epistle to the Ephesians that I've already mentioned, does it say in all six chapters that you need to be filled with the Spirit? Would Paul have been the pastor of a church for over two years where the people that he baptized weren't filled with the Spirit? No way. It's something we've got to constantly ask for. And we, we do offend and grieve and quench the Holy Spirit, and we need to be refilled, and we need to be filled at a greater level. And that's why it says in Ephesians chapter 5, be filled with the Spirit. That's why it says in chapter 3, I'm praying to God, the Father by whom all His people on, in earth and heaven are named, that you might be filled with His Spirit. Chapter 1, I'm praying for the Spirit of Revelation to be in you. We're all, we, should, we should always be praying for the Holy Spirit, and we right. do not pray enough for the Holy Spirit, the power of Pentecost, to be in us, not to speak in tongues, but to have joy, peace, love, hope, and power for virtuous living. That's why we have prayer meetings on Thursday night. And I can tell some of you want prayers for health. I do not understand that in comparison to prayers for the Holy Spirit. Some of you want prayers for jobs. I do not understand that in comparison to prayers for the Holy Spirit. We'll get around to praying for your jobs. We'll get around to praying for your health. We'll get around to praying for these other insignificant things. But first of all, we want to pray for this. Amen. We want this power in our lives. Yes. This is the higher ground of being a Christian. Give me poverty as long as I have the Holy Spirit. Give me a disease as long as I'm filled with the Holy Ghost. Right. We must keep our priorities in the right place. This event marked the permanent comforting presence of the Holy Spirit with believers, which Jesus Christ had promised in John chapter 7, which we just studied a few weeks ago. In John chapter 7, Jesus stood up with a loud voice and declared, let's get the exact words, in John chapter 7 and verse 38. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And then in parentheses, the Holy Spirit tells us what Jesus meant by that statement. Jesus' statement, He that believeth on me, and these were believers in that room, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And I preached that to you just a few months ago. Verse 39 in parentheses, But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given. God's presence on earth by the Holy Spirit inside men was not yet given because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus needed to finish his work, rise from the dead, ascend up into heaven, be glorified, get the gift of the Holy Spirit from God, and then give it, which he did. And so John 7 is describing Pentecost right here in Acts Chapter 2. This is first fruits of the Spirit, according to the Apostle Paul. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit. These are the first ones to get the Holy Spirit like this. Paul referred to himself and the other apostles that way in Romans chapter 8 and verse 23. The power of the Holy Spirit is available to you and he's available to me for personal and church benefits. If we're believers. In Romans 15, 13, now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace through believing 
in believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. Amen. The power of the Holy Ghost is able to fill us with all joy, fill us with all peace, and cause hope to abound in us. All we have to do is believe. But we need that Spirit and His power in us. And so it says in Ephesians 5.18, Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And so it's a choice to be filled. Right. Be filled means that's a passive openingness to the Holy Spirit filling us. The Spirit must come to us. But we can be filled by praying for it, opening ourselves to Him, falling down before the Lord God of heaven, on our knees, in our knees, in our hearts on our knees before his word and say, Lord, fill me, use me, glorify thyself to me, glorify thyself through me. Let me have the power of Pentecost. Oh, he can change you. Amen. He can change me. He can change our church. There's the first four verses of Acts chapter 2. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen. Amen.